I sure hope you're doing well. I'm going to start with a word of prayer, and then I'll share with you what's on my heart. Lord, thank you so much for these great folks, and uh, the high honor being able to share with them this morning uh, what you've put in my heart, especially today, Lord. Um, I guess I just ask especially a special anointing on the words today as we prepare for Easter and um, all that will be involved with that for each one of us as individuals. And so um, I want to pray today what I pray every week. Uh, we want to leave here and be more like you. And for some of us, that's going to be a major overhaul. Uh, others of us, it's going to be a tweak. It doesn't really matter. We just want to be more like Jesus. I want to love like you. I want to raise my kids like you would and love my spouse and, and live and lead all that like you. And I pray that for everybody in this room. So no matter what your agenda is, help us to lay aside whatever we have and allow you to help us to be more like you. And use these words, I pray, to urge us in that direction in your name. Amen. Uh, man, uh, a lot of neat things happening in the church. And if you're just visiting, uh, this is the end of this particular series. Uh, next Sunday, we start uh, fresh with a new series. And um, this has been a significant series for our church. And, and I'll tell you why I feel that. Um, we, we sensed God calling us as a, as a body to a kind of a deeper level of obedience, if you will. And, and the terminology we've used uh, over the past almost year to talk about that is what we call um, this whole idea of, be, of living missionally or being part of a multiplication movement. And the idea is we need to get about sharing what God has done uh, in our hearts and lives. And so we've made all kinds of changes. In fact, uh, right now there's an 18,000 square feet, foot, square feet, it's a big building being added on over here on the end. And uh, in fact, next week when you come, uh, the walls will actually be put in place. They're, they got a big crane out there today, if you'll see it out there. And they're going to lift those walls, put them in place. So next week it'll be like, add water, there's a building. And uh, so that's going to be awesome. And um, then we've also made some changes in our discipleship worlds. So we've, just, we've always done small groups, but now we've actually uh, given people an opportunity to do life groups. So people that don't want to do a semester idea, but would rather do it year-round while those life groups are available we started the Deepen class, which is basically two agendas. We want to teach you how to study Scripture and teach you how to pray. And we can't do enough of those classes. They keep filling up every time we do them. And that's an exciting thing to be part of. And then we have a couple more that are going to follow suit in a short period of time. We also have done some missions trips. Our team just got back from India. Um, several more are scheduled throughout this year. Uh, Haiti's one of them. I just got a conversation this week about Africa being one of them. And so uh, that's the idea there to get our people on mission fields. And the church is actually going to help you financially to get there. And that's what that's about as well. All this is part, if you will, of what we sense God calling us to. And this series has been significant for me as the pastor of our church. And I'll, t- and I'll tell you why. Because this series has called us to not just be a missional church, but to actually become a missional people. See, it's one thing for me to be up here and to kind of say, here's this is what we're going to do. We're going to take this hill. We're going to do this. But until you buy into it, to be honest with you, I'm just a crazy guy up here saying stuff. But when we buy into it together, when we say, man, you know, I think there's some sense to that. Well, then things begin to change. And, and I feel like that's happened in this series. So uh, if you've ever played sports before, uh, you are familiar with this feeling, most likely, uh, and that's this. You go to practice, and you practice and practice and practice. You go through all the drills, and then when it comes game time, you sit on the bench. Okay, that, that's kind of, you just sit, some of us just live there on the bench. We thought we practiced to sit on the bench, and so that's kind of what we did, and so you just kind of do that, and it's a terrible feeling, to be honest with you. It is a terrible feeling to sit on the bench, and yet, to be honest with you, it's also part of life, and then there comes this moment in a game where the coach looks down the bench and he calls your name and you're so pumped, you're so excited to be getting into the game to start or whatever, made the starting lineup, whatever, 
It's what you've trained for. Nobody trains for practice. We, tra- we train to play the game. And so when the coach puts us in, it's this affirmation that, wow, we're ready to be in the game. We're ready to play. And maybe in a similar way, I sort of feel that through this series. I sort of feel like Alive is being put in the game. We have hundreds of names of people strung across this lobby and on the campus lobby and all those kinds of things. And those are people that we want to see get in a room with Jesus. And God has sort of looked down his bench and looked at all the resources that God has. And he said, hey, Alive, you get in the game. You're in the game. And Alive has kind of been rising to that challenge. And you may ask yourself, what's the game? What is the game? Well, the game has to do with this tension we've been talking about through this entire series. And if you're just visiting, see if you see this tension in our culture. Let me create the tension for you. There's this chili chocolate center fundamental belief of Christianity that teaches this. There's a heaven and there's a hell. And everybody in history will spend eternity in one or the other based on what they do with the person of Jesus Christ. Now, you may reject that, and that's fine. That's your prerogative. But this is just what Christianity teaches. There's a heaven and there's a hell. And everybody in history, everybody you passed on the way here, everybody you left at home, everybody that's going to wait on you over lunch or wherever, everybody is going to spend eternity in one or the other based on what they do with the person of Jesus Christ. You say, well, what exactly is heaven? Well, heaven is, 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 I think it's a place, but it's also living eternally in the unlimited presence, power, and grace of God. And I think heaven, for me, can actually start when I accept Jesus into my heart. And what I mean by that is I start to experience some of God's grace and power and presence in my heart. And then when I get to heaven, the location, then like the, the, the bottle's off, the top's off the bottle. And it's just, it's, it's full, unfiltered. Hell's just the opposite. Hell is... Hell is living eternally under condemnation and separation from God. You know, a lot of people have hang-ups about hell because they think, well, what, what kind of living God would put people in hell? I guess my spin on is a little different. I think hell is God giving us exactly what we asked for. So, like, if I spent my entire life and said, I don't want anything to do with God, and when we get to the end of it all, God says, well, I'll give you exactly what you want. If that's what you want, this is, this is yours. And if you've lived your life like I have at different periods of time, I think hell could also start in this life as well. I believe there's an actual location, but man, who in the room doesn't know what it means to live under condemnation and feel separated from God, separated from things that are holy? See, people we love, people we do life with and have have yet to decide on this truth. They have yet to deal with this because nobody's ever asked them. And that's one point of tension. So what do you do with that? Well, that's the second point of the tension. Jesus is teaching one day, and Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And then he says, nobody gets to the Father except through me. Now, that's either the most arrogant statement ever made, or it's true. And if it's true, it can't just be true for you, but not true for you. Truth is just truth. Fair? It doesn't matter if you accept it or reject it. If you say, Tom, I don't believe in gravity. And I say, well, gravity is true. And you say, well, I don't believe it. Well, I'll say, take a flying leap off the stage and I'll teach you about it. I'll teach you all about what gravity will do to you. It's just true whether we accept it or not. Well, that's kind of where I am on this. If it's true, then maybe we ought to pay attention to it. So now we have this tension going on. There's a heaven, there's a hell. Everybody will spend eternity. Everybody in history will spend eternity in one or the other based on what they do with Jesus. And Jesus said... 
I'm the way, the truth, and life, and nobody gets to the Father except through me. And then there's our culture. And in our culture, we reject the two ideas I've just shared with you. We reject the two ideas of exclusivity, of exclusivity and an absolute truth. We're part of a culture that says, well, that may be true for you, but it's not true for me. Guys, listen, wake up. That's not what truth is. Truth just is. It doesn't matter if we accept or reject. It just is. And then we reject the idea that not everybody gets the trophy. We think that every kid ought to get the trophy. Every kid ought to get the certificate. And when we die, everybody ought to get in. And into this tension, this absolute truth and exclusivity, these, these ideas, this tension, there's a heaven, there's a hell. I am the only way. Nobody, there's no such thing as absolute truth and exclusivity. Into that tension, God looks down the bench and he calls a lives number and says, I want you to get in the game of resolving this tension. And so what we have begun to do, many of us, is we've begun to dream and even vision about what it might be like if people in our lives had some of this tension resolved? What would it look like if people I love, people that are on my list, people I'm doing life with, to move from this category of condemnation? Yeah, I've screwed up, and I've screwed up a lot. And I carry all the shame and all the guilt in my life from that. What would it look like if they moved from that through Jesus Christ into the freedom and forgiveness category? And the people that we want to see get in the room with Jesus... Their names are listed out there in our lobby on those cards. Well, Jesus defined what this game is. This whole idea of getting in the game for a life to get in. He defined it in his parting words. After the arrest and the suffering and the cross and the death and the resurrection, Jesus gathers some of his followers on top of a mountain, and he says, okay, I'm getting ready to go, but before I go, I want to put these words in your minds and in your hearts, and I want you to remember them. And the words were this. He said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's the cause. Here comes the effect. Because of that, go as you're going and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to obey everything I've commanded you, and I'll be with you to the end of the age. And that's the game. Sometimes I think that maybe those parting words of Jesus were giving to the church. You know, I kind of think it's the church's responsibility to kind of do the Great Commission piece. It's what the church does. But there was no church when Jesus gave those words. You know who Jesus gave the words of the Great Commission to? You and me. Ordinary people like us. In other words, the Great Commission isn't something the church does. The Great Commission is something individuals in the church do. Does that make sense? So it's one thing, again, for me to get up and say, hey, let's do the Great Commission. But until you decide and I decide to actually do the Great Commission, the parting words that Jesus commanded us to do in our personal lives, then we're really not doing it. And I feel like in this series, the church has kind of stepped up and said, you know what? This is on us. It's time for us to do something about this. And so Easter weekend, we are courageously inviting people on our list to basically come and see 
We're not thumping them in the head with some Bible and telling them how, what a sick, slimy sinner they are. We're not saying, hey, you're probably going to hell. In fact, if you die, you're probably going to go today. Are your feet warm? We're not doing any of that. We're not judging people and saying, oh, you're the biggest screw-up I know. We're not arguing with people. If people want to fight about your theology, let them go to another church. We don't want them around here. So, you know, just kind of let that happen. It's simply this. This is kind of what we're saying. I found something really good in my life. And I'd love for you to come and see it. And that's it. And if they say no, fine. Go on, be friends. Let's keep going. But if they say yes, maybe God has a point in time ready for them. Maybe he's got an appointment for them. And they're going to move from this condemnation category into this freedom and forgiveness category. And that's simply it. I found something good in my life. And I'd love for you to come see it. So we've been thinking about how to prepare for that for our Easter services at Alive. And so Justine's already mentioned a special time of prayer, Thursday and Friday. Listen, everybody just stop by. No one's going to bother you. The cards are there. Communion's set up. Just come. Enjoy yourself. Pray. Take communion and and be part of this. And then on Easter, we're trying something we've never tried before. First of all, we're doing the uh, Easter egg hunt Saturday morning because of all the rain we got yesterday. Who knows? I mean, Loyola's in the final four. Who knows what's going to happen, right? Nobody has any idea. And so uh, we're going to have this Easter egg hunt. And then uh, at 6.30 on Saturday evening, we're going to try a a Saturday evening service. And I know some of you have already heard our traditionalists, well, Jesus didn't raise till Sunday. (laughs) You're right. But anyway, we're going to try it in a way, Saturday night, 6.30. And so if you want to, they say, I work Sunday morning. Well, come with them on Saturday night. Everything will be identical in every service. So, I mean, Saturday night, same kids, same Sermon, same music, same special, everything. Everything's the same. And so you can come. And some of you need to say some words you've never said before. Hey, why don't you come and see? And afterwards, I'll buy. You know, you need to say that because that'll be the thing that hooks them, you know, to get them to come out and to be a part. And so just come, come and see. And then we're going to do Saturday mo- or Sunday morning. We'll do an 830 here, 10 o'clock here, 10 o'clock in the chapel, 1130 here. And then, our, of course, our campus will be at 11. But these are all opportunities for you to, to come and see. So, so here's where all this is. As we head into this go time, and when we all start making decisions about whether or not we're actually going to invite people on our list, where your heart, where's your heart on all this? In fact, where's the heart of the people we're going to be inviting? And so as I've tried to think about that, this, this message is primarily targeted toward where the heart might be, your heart and my heart. Today we celebrate Palm Sunday. That, that's kind of a time in church where we celebrate Uh, all the passion of Easter and all the events of Easter leading to the cross. And part of that celebration was all of the people and the Jewish people, a lot of the Jewish people were gathered in Jerusalem, this small village, and they all converged on Jerusalem to celebrate what's called the Passover feast. So what that means is Jerusalem has somewhere between three and 400,000 people in it. And they're remembering when God passed over the people of Israel. Instead of when the plate of the blood on the doors, we talked about in this series, and the, and, and the angel of death passed over, and these people were delivered. They're remembering that. So this is a big deal for the Jewish people. It's a, it's a big deal. And all the people are gathered in Jerusalem for this to happen, and then this takes place. This is Matthew 21, if you want to read it in Scripture uh, for yourself. As Jesus and his disciples approached Jerusalem, they came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives. Where did it come? Mount of Olives, right. Just stay with it. Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you'll find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. Now, just a couple things to note before we move on from this passage. Jesus is a, I'm sorry for this analogy, but he's a rock star in this culture. 
He's a healer. He's a miracle worker. He turned water to wine. He's raised up dead people. He's here lepers. The dude is, is, he's at the top of everybody's story, okay? Everybody was into Jesus because you never knew what he's going to do. People flocked to Jesus to hear him and to see what was going to happen. And because of this, for three years, the rumors start circulating amongst the people, hey, this Jesus dude, do you think he might be Messiah? The Messiah, the long-awaited deliverer of the people of Israel. Do you think Jesus might be that guy? Jesus is on the Mount of Olives, okay? Now, just for geographic, you can look for yourself, but Mount of Olives is here. Jerusalem is here, kind of at the foot of the Mount of Olives. So Jesus and his, and his crew, <laughs> Jesus and his disciples are, are coming down this hill, and everybody in Jerusalem, a good many, can actually look and see that take place. Do you follow what I'm saying? So the three to 400,000 to celebrate the Passover, and already in town, are different areas in town, they're all talking about, do you think this Jesus dude might be Messiah? And so all of a sudden they look up and they say, hey, there's Jesus now. He's coming to town. Jesus and his disciples. And so everybody gets sort of excited about this. This is going to be an exciting time. Everybody knows he's coming. They're anticipating him coming because they've seen him. The second point I want to talk about is really more human, but does anyone else bothered by the mode of transportation Jesus chose to come? Let's think about it just a moment. If you remember, Jesus is riding a donkey. Now, nothing's ever done by accident, but let me just say this. A donkey is a less than inspiring animal as a general rule. I mean, if you're going to take over a city or a village or something, don't come on a donkey, okay? That's just not what you want to do, and not just any donkey. But if you read the scripture, that's a great picture of a donkey. (laughs) If... (laughs) If you read a picture, if you read a picture, or not read the picture, if you read the scripture, Jesus wrote on a baby one of these. It's in the Bible, right? It's in the Bible. So I wonder if that means his feet were dragging the ground as he rode the donkey into town. I really wonder about this. And you think, why in the world? I mean, if you're going to like impress people, why not like use a giraffe or something amazing? You know, why, why a horse? Let's just go with a horse. Why a donkey? Well, nothing's by mistake. It's actually, this is said in verse 4. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, see your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now we've got to build a bridge. Stay with me. So you've got three to 400,000 people in Jerusalem wondering if it's the Messiah. They look on top of the hill, and here comes Jesus and his disciples into town. The place is electric. But then, someone says, he's riding on a colt. He's riding on a foal of a donkey. Now, that doesn't mean anything to me and to you. But the three to 400,000 people, these people were well-versed in when the Messiah would come, what it would look like. They had all the list of what the Messiah would be, the line of David, and all these ideas of how the Messiah would come to be. And everybody in town knew that the prophet said the Messiah would come riding into town on a donkey, full of a donkey. So this group that was already wondering if the Messiah was Jesus, now they see him on a donkey, and the parade is on. Does that make sense? 
So this group gets crazy nuts and think, oh my goodness, our long-awaited deliverer, the Messiah, is coming to town, and this is going to happen now. We've been waiting for this for hundreds and hundreds of years, and the Messiah is now coming. Look, he's on a donkey, and as soon as they start seeing he's on the foal of a donkey, that rumor spread like wildfire in Jerusalem. And so everybody sees he's coming, and this is when everybody got crazy with the parade, and here's why they did it. So this very large crowd spread their cloaks, took their cloaks off, and laid it on the ground, and palm fronds on the ground. Why? Because the Messiah was finally here, and he's coming. And we're going to let the Messiah come in on on, on, on the most padded way, in the most honored way. And so the Messiah comes into town. The crowds went ahead of him, and they followed, and they shouted. Listen to what they shouted. Hosanna! To the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Three to four hundred thousand people crying out, Hosanna. Here's my question. Why Hosanna? Because Hosanna just means Lord save us. That's what it means. From what? Why was that what was on, the tongue, on their tongues? Why that, why that phrase? Why not something else? Like, I don't know. Here comes a Messiah on a donkey. I don't know. Something else. Why? Why Hosanna? Well, let me tell you what's going on. In their hearts of people, the people were tired of the Roman oppression they were under. 80% taxation for some of the folks. Stolen property and land. If the Romans wanted, they took it. Persecution and death simply because they were Jewish. They were an oppressed people simply because they were Jewish. And so what they said when Jesus rode into town on a donkey, Lord, save us. What they were saying, save us from them. Save us from the Roman. Come into town and kick Roman hiney. That's what needs to happen. I want to pause here to suggest something to you. I think we can all relate at some level to the people in Jerusalem that day. Because that day, all the people in Jerusalem could see is their current circumstances. Fair? And sometimes, when you and I come to worship, come to God, all we see is our current circumstances. In fact, some of you are here because of a current circumstance. And I get this. I I get it. Um... And most likely the people we're going to be inviting over the next week, they get it too. I think all of us go to God when our current circumstances tank or we get in trouble. We want God to heal or God to provide or convince or change or forgive or restore or rescue the kid or rescue the marriage or rescue mom and dad, whatever. And all these are good things. We pray this, God, fix this, fix that, fix them. And that's exactly what the people in Jerusalem are hoping for. Jesus, come and fix this. Hosanna. Let's fix it starting with the Romans. This is going to be a great Passover feast. We're right behind you, Jesus. Let's go take on the Romans. And the tension is high in Jerusalem because the people are acting crazy. And like there's three to 400,000 of them getting crazy about this Jesus and the Messiah. And the Romans start to think, dude, this, it could be on like Donkey Kong today. <laughs> you know, this could be a moment where we're done. And so they're getting kind of freaked out by everything. 
And so the parade gathers, and there's Jesus riding his little donkey. You know, he's riding his donkey. And he, and he goes up here, and the road, if you go this way, you're going to go to the Roman seat of power. And so everyone's got their cloaks lined up and their palm fronds lined up, and they're all headed that way. But instead of doing that way, Jesus goes that way to the temple. And the people were incredibly confused. Jesus, I know you're the Son of God and Messiah, but you're a little lost here in Jerusalem. And so let me show you how to get to the Roman seat of power. And Jesus like, I don't know, whatever you do to a little donkey. And he just kind of takes a little donkey and he goes to, to the temple. Jesus, why are you at the temple? This is the Jewish people. Why are you in the temple? This is our place. The problem is actually out there. Why are you messing in here? Go out there. Threatening circumstances to our life isn't in here. It's out there. It's the Romans. And then watch what Jesus does. Jesus enters the temple area and he drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. I'm going to come back to that in a moment. He overturned the the whole table and he said, it is written, he said, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you're making it a den of robbers. Now, again, I got to sort of build a bridge here. See, the people in the temple, the people that were running it, were gouging the people that came to worship in Jerusalem. It was a big festival, three to four hundred thousand people. You couldn't really take your goat with you wherever you had to travel. So you'd buy it at the temple. And when you bought it there, people were gouging. If you've ever been to the movies and bought popcorn, you know exactly what they felt. Like, that's exactly what they were doing. They were going, oh, here's popcorn. Cost costs us 99 cents. It's $16 just for you. Okay, that's what that is. And that's what they would do with the sacrifice thing. That's what they were doing. They were saying, hey, come to worship, but it's going to cost you, you know, six times as much or whatever. Come to worship. And Jesus is incensed. Now, I'm going to say something that's going to violate your, your understanding of Jesus. Um, but Jesus literally opens a can on the people in the temple. Lose your Sunday school Jesus right now. Jesus did not go in there and say, oh, gee, guys, pretty please, would you mind just not doing that anymore? That wasn't what happened. In fact, John says, Jesus made a whip. (laughs) I don't know. I really like that understanding of Jesus. But I never saw it hanging on a wall in my Sunday school class. Did you, right? I think maybe we ought to add that. But anyway, Jesus kind of has this Indiana Jones sort of moment. And he goes crazy. I mean, he's shouting, he's yelling, he's got the whip going, and he's moving people, and then he sees the little table with the selling of the doves, and he flips that thing over, and the doves are like, what did I do? You know, we're just minding my own business, and I'll, we're the peace animal, you know, and the doves like, whole world's turned upside down. And I don't know why that was, just be honest. I don't know why he went after the doves, but I have a theory. So pause now. Everything that follows is not from Scripture. It's from Tom's head, which is a dark place. Do you remember? So, so the dove and the pigeons, those are like the cheapest sacrifice you could buy. Okay, those, those are like for, for poor folks to be able to go in and still be able to worship. But the price was jacked up, you know. Do y'all remember when Jesus, he was circumcised eight, years old, eight days old, and um, Mary and Joseph go to the temple? Does anybody remember what sacrifice they offered at the temple? The dove. You know Why? They were poor. Now, Jesus is 100% man, 100% God. 
I don't know what that means. If you figure it out, send me a note. I have no idea. But that, that, I believe that. And so here's Jesus. The temple's messed up. People are gouging people coming to worship. And then he sees the doves. And then maybe he remembers, hey, my family was poor too. <laughs> you know, and that thing goes flying just to kind of say, hey, I get this. Why are we taking advantage of poor people as well? So like the people in Jerusalem that day, we find ourselves maybe being able to relate a little more than we thought. Because like the people in Jerusalem that day, we can all ask God if you would be willing to fix our circumstances. And what he starts with isn't the circumstances. What he starts with is overturning tables in our own heart and in our own lives. That's where he starts. See, the true intention of this word, Hosanna, isn't save us from circumstances. It's save us from condemnation. So often when we ask God to fix what's out there, he'll start with what's in here. And I feel like I need to tell you that. Because some of you come to church thinking God's going to fix your circumstance. And I just want to tell you, that's not the top of the agenda. He might. I don't know. He might. But I'll guarantee he wants to fix what's inside here for each of us. You say, how can you say that? Well, I have people I love that still die of cancer, even though I wanted God to change that. Fair? See, what God wants to fix is our condition. And sometimes the fixing of the condition allows the circumstances to change. And that's a good thing, but not always does that happen. So he spends the next few days teaching the people who follow him. And the people, they start to get a little antsy for the same reason some of you got a little antsy just a second ago because they thought he would come and fix all their circumstances and make their life perfect again. But that's never what God promises to do. And respectfully, it's not what he's promising to do for you either. He's promising to fix your condition. That's what he's promising to fix. And as the Jesus taught in the temple, the Messiah expectations were bursting before their eyes because anytime you go to Jesus expecting he's going to fix circumstances, you're going to be a little disappointed. At the end of the week, Jesus dies. He's butchered and whipped and thorns and nails and spear. You know the story. And nobody who saw those circumstances thought, oh, it's all going to be fine, don't worry. Nobody. You and I, we all live in the post-resurrection age, so we all know how it happens. But nobody that day in Jerusalem knew what was going to happen. Because death is permanent. And the circumstances said, this is game over. And for the people who came to Jerusalem expecting a celebration and a victory, instead witnessed the tragedy. Not just the tragedy of the physical sense, but the tragedy of the emotional sense. We thought he was Messiah. He came on the town on a foal of a donkey. And now he's hanging on a cross, and the dude's dead. He wasn't the one. Circumstances remain the same. There's Jesus hanging on a cross, dead.
And I got to tell you, sometimes I like to rush past that part. I want to get to the empty cross business. You know what I'm saying? I want to get to the point where everything ends up being okay. But as I've gotten older, in my 29th year, I find myself not wanting to rush by the cross anymore. And I don't know if I can explain this well or not, so just give me grace if I, if I don't. But I, <laughs> I guess I sort of want to hurt. I want to look at the cross and remember that at one time it was full. I want to remember that this change of condition in my own heart was free for me, but it cost God everything. I want to remember that I was loved by someone at some point in all of history to such a degree that they were willing to do that for me. Because I don't have too many people in my life like that, huh? But I had one dude who did. And so I sort of wish we would linger a bit more at a cross with Jesus hanging on it. I wish we would look at the suffering a bit more. Because I want to reflect on the cost of my free gift. And maybe if I would understand the cost, I would cherish it a bit more. Because whatever happened on that cross changed my condition from this condemned guy who was worthy of it all. He he was worthy of condemnation. There wasn't anything good happening out of me that was somehow set free and forgiven because of what happened on that cross. And that changed everything for me. Paul's going to come along a few years later. He's going to write a letter to a group called the Romans. (laughs) Anybody want to guess what his book's called? (laughs) Romans. And he addresses some of this, this thing in us that says, what about the circumstances? What about what I'm grinding on right now? What about what I'm grinding through right now in our home, in our relationships? What about that? And he says this. I consider that our present sufferings, what you and I are carrying at the forefront of our minds, and I have them and you have them. I consider that our present sufferings aren't even worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. And what he's saying is this. In light of eternity, in light of a cross that was full, and in light of a cross that is empty, this that you're going through right now is just a moment. It's just a moment. But when we're in the middle of it, isn't it true it's the only moment? When we're grinding through something, this is the only moment. And I get that. I get that. That's part of my life too. But as we prep for Easter and as you begin your invitations, I want to encourage you with this. Despite your circumstances that you're grinding on right now, relational, physical, whatever, emotional, whatever you're grinding on, God has you. And He may be moving the tables around inside of you 
not because he's mad at you, but actually because he loves you and he's preparing you for something miraculous. And so, yeah, he's sliding tables around inside of here. But God, I want you to fix... No, 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 no. Right here. I got some tables to overturn. I got some things to fix right in here. Paul goes on. What then shall we say in response to this? If God's for us, who can be against us? Should we say that? The one who didn't spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Then he says this. Who's going to bring any charge against those whom God's chosen? It's God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus who died? It's not him. More than that was raised to life. He's sitting at the right hand of the Father right now. Then he says these words. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Your circumstances? You see it? Really? Your circumstances are going to separate you from the love of Christ? Let's talk about them, shall we? Trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword, disease, depression, fear, betrayal. What's going to separate you from the love of Christ? For your sake, we face death all day long. And then Paul writes the bomb diggity. He says, oh, no, 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 no. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And then he says, you know what? I'm convinced of this. Death, nor life, angels, nor demons, present, nor future, nor any powers, neither height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So you may have legit circumstances going on. Not denying that. But the hope we have is that God can actually change our condition. And if the condition changes, the cross that was full that is now empty, if the condition changes, then sometimes circumstances do, sometimes they don't. But our condition changes. And we're no longer stuck in condemnation. Now we're free and forgiven. Does that make sense? That's, that's Easter hope for me. Because I'm not sure if you sat down with me, you could fix the circumstances in my life. I don't think you could. But I can tell you that Jesus sometimes turns tables over inside of here. And he's helping fix my condition. And he'll do the same for you. Oh, Jesus, thank you for these beautiful people. And this is the high honor of being able to share with them what you've placed on my heart here. Uh, man, I, I just, during worship, I was just thinking about the circumstances that we all carry in this room. And uh, man, they were heavy, God. I just, I just realized I don't have the wherewithal to be able to carry the circumstances. Fear of the unknown, fear of the uncertainty, fear of future, fear of present, fear of past. And I realize, Lord, that we're not in the circumstance-managing business. You're actually in the business of changing the condition of our hearts. 
And I wonder if that's why some people are even here today. Hey, listen, would you just, if you think, if you think that's you, let me just speak directly here for a moment. I, I wonder if some of you are here because God wants you to begin a personal relationship with him. You say, Tom, that sounds really intense and kind of freaky, and I get that. But here's what it basically means. You start doing life with Jesus, and you ask every day, every minute, every experience, every activity, I want to be more like you. I want to be more like you. I'm going to spend the rest of my life learning about you and what it means to be more like you. And if that's you and you want to begin that personal relationship, uh, it's a simple ask on your part. It's not a fancy ceremony or routine. It's just ask God Ask God to save you. Save you from what? Well, that condemnation business. I've screwed this life up, God, and I've screwed it up good. And I've hurt the people I love the most. And if you can save me from that condition, I want you to come and save me. And if you make that prayer, God does that. Does that mean we're perfect? (laughs) Not yet. (laughs) But it does mean I have hope. Because as God changed in my heart, I find that some of the circumstances in my life change as well. And for some of you, that may be exactly why you're here. And so if that's you, I just encourage you to make the prayer. Lord, I pray for my friends in the room that are really grinding on a tough circumstance right now. And I pray you would give them a calm peace that's deeper than the circumstance. It's at the core of who they are. I got you. Nothing can separate you from me. Nothing can separate you from my love. In your name I pray, amen.